Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Assalamualaikum. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you all for joining me here today. I would really like to thank NYUAD for giving me the opportunity to speak to you today about something that I am very, very passionate about and something that I think is extremely important in this day and age, and that's philanthropy. I understand from my colleagues, this is uh, perhaps the first time that anyone has spoken about philanthropy in the illustrious 10-year history of these talks. Uh, and so I'm both honored and uh, terrified. But uh, I really do hope that this kickstarts a series of talks on philanthropy that where we can bring in some of the brightest minds from around the world who can share their experiences uh, about this important uh, subject. So to start things off, I mentioned that I am passionate about philanthropy. But here's a secret. I would wager that every single person in this room is passionate about philanthropy, whether they know it or not. Passionate about philanthropy, whether they know it or not, because human beings, we are born with this innate sense to do good in this world. We have this will or desire to go above and beyond, to be part of a cause that is greater than ourselves. We are all motivated to give back, whether it's to our clan or community or country or, or the entire world. And I know some of you might think that I'm being unrealistic when I say everybody is passionate about philanthropy. And to anyone out there who says that they're not or that they don't care about giving back, I will tell them that you, you are passionate about philanthropy, you just don't know it yet. Because trust me, the second that you get engaged in a cause that that matters, the second that you start volunteering your time into something that, that is going to have an impact, the second that you fork over some of your hard-earned money, and, and more importantly, the second you see that person who benefits from your program, where he tells you how much, or she tells you, how much that program changed their lives, that's when, that's when it clicks. That's when you realize that there's a whole other side of you that you never knew existed. You discover it all over again, a part that makes you, makes you whole. And uh, I know that sounds too powerful, perhaps too dramatic to some. But let me ask you this. Why else would you see someone like Bill Gates, who donates billions and billions of dollars every year, a large part of their wealth, and there are millions like Bill Gates, right? For a cause that will benefit someone that they've never met and with all likelihood will never meet in their life. How else would you explain a, a doctor in the United States who takes some time off uh, from work and instead of earning a high income or instead of taking a much needed vacation somewhere, uh, they end up at their own expense and risking their lives to visit a location somewhere in this world that is perhaps unsafe to treat people that, again, they've never met or have no relationship with apart from the fact that they are both human. Such a powerful force. I, I don't think there's anything like it. 
There's nothing that can motivate you like, like philanthropy. There are few things in the world that can do so. And, uh, and that's what makes it a, such a powerful tool that people can use to change the world. And that's why we're here today. But also, here's the caveat. That's what makes philanthropy dangerous. And I know what you're thinking, dangerous? You just spent the past five minutes telling us how great philanthropy is. Now you're telling me it's dangerous? What are you talking about? And so humor me here. If anyone in this room has ever donated anything to any particular cause or thought about donating, just the, the mere thought has crossed your minds, can you please just humor me and put your hands up and keep them there? Even thought about it. Great, so everyone. And now let's, let's keep our hands up there if you've ever been skeptical when you were thinking about giving that money. If you thought, is someone going to steal that money or how much of that money is going to arrive to that donor or, or you know, how much of that money is going to be paid, spent on payroll? Okay, so no disrespect to anyone, but I would be very skeptical of a person who hasn't thought that before just because it might be seen at times as, as naive given what has transpired over the past thousands and thousands of years which our people have always taken advantage of people's willingness to do good. There are countless examples of charities. Maybe they're a minority, but there are countless examples of people who stole other people's money or created a charity that was a uh, criminal front, perhaps. But more worryingly, the most thing that worries me is not when an, a charity is, is, is a, a criminal outfit. No, what worries me is when you have hardworking, passionate people working at a philanthropy, but they don't do it right. You meet someone and they would sell their own house for that cause. They're so passionate about it, but they don't know anything about running an organization. Because ladies and gentlemen, here's a secret. Philanthropies are organizations. Just like businesses, just like government departments, there are best practices. There are scientific principles. There are things that you really need to perfect in order to manage a philanthropy and repay the trust that that donor has put in you when they gave you their money. That's what my talk is about today. And so I know some of you came here today thinking this is going to be an uplifting talk and that you're going to share some amazing stories and you're going to wake up tomorrow all energetic, you know, something like that. But in reality, my talk is, um, is similar to a DC comic movie. It's, it's, it's dark, it's brutal, no one wants to watch it, but it has a key message that really needs to be said, something that is real. Um, and so when I start, I just want to make sure that everyone's on the same page today when we talk about a charity and a philanthropy. Because I've used these concepts interchangeably until this moment, and most people do, and there's so much overlap between them. But in reality, Charities are not philanthropies, right? Am I blocking the screen? Charities are not philanthropies. Charities are organizations that focus on addressing an immediate need to alleviate an immediate suffering. An example of that is someone who's hungry, who's going to die from hunger, feeding that person, or someone who needs clothes on their back, or a house to live in. Perhaps it's someone who needs a medicine just to survive, right? And so the nature of charities and, and, you know, most of us, when we think about philanthropy, we probably think about charity, is short-term. It's about addressing that immediate need. And it's usually focused on a very disadvantaged group, a low-income group, 
or perhaps a drug addict or some other um, person that is in need of help. And philanthropies, at least the way I'm defining it here today, are more strategic. They look at the root cause of the problem. They're not concerned about feeding that human being right now. They're concerned about knowing why. Why is that person not able to afford food? What's the secret? Is it because there aren't any employment opportunities? Is it because they don't have the right skill set? Maybe it's a government policy that discriminates against a particular ethnic group. I don't know what the reason is, but that's what philanthropy set out to do. They identify that root cause of the problem and they try to address it through elaborate strategies and initiatives. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's extremely complex, right? And it's extremely frustrating because if you're trying to solve a root cause of a problem that's often very complicated, more likely than not, it's going to take you 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years to solve that problem. So you really have to be patient. And the last thing is it could benefit multiple groups. It's not just about disadvantaged groups. Obviously, they benefit too. But a philanthropy can benefit rich and poor, it can benefit male and female, can benefit the entire community, depending on what that philanthropy is focusing on. And so please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're both needed in this world. You know, a lot of people say, you know, why, why should you feed someone or give them a fish or something along those lines where, where you can teach someone how to fish, right? That's the thing that we always hear. But in reality, if it's going to take you six months or two years to teach someone how to fish, that person's going to starve to death. You need a charity to feed them in the meantime. And at the same time, you can't continue to feed them forever. And that's how these, these two organizations work, work together hand in hand. And a lot of organizations combine both elements. So what are some of the major trends that are affecting philanthropy in the world and in the region? And the absolute biggest trend that I can think of is that philanthropy is on the rise. If you look at statistics from Giving USA Foundation, and you look at real terms, right? About $100 billion were donated as total giving to both charities and, and philanthropies in 1975. In 2017, an updated number is $410 billion. So in 40 years, you've been able to quadruple that amount. That's a lot of money. $400 billion just from the U.S., right? But the interesting part here is who's giving that money. And we're not saying that rich people are, are more generous than poor people. Not at all. But just the fact that high net worth individuals have a lot more money, they end up spending or contributing to a very large percentage of total donations. In the U.S., the estimate was about a third of total donations was uh, contributed to by the top 1%, the richest 1% in the world. And it's not just on donations. When we look at bequests, about 86% uh, of them came from high net worth individuals. And, and the reason I mention this is because not only are high net worth individuals becoming increasingly more important, their power and their influence is going to increase even more as we go along. Because if anyone is an economics major, and if anyone remembers back in 2012 or 13 with Thomas Piketty was talking about the income and wealth gap uh, that has been occurring over the, the past uh, few decades, we know that rich people were extremely rich, right? What, the top 1% of America owned about 50% of all wealth back in the uh, early 20th century. And what happened there is that their share, 
gradually decreased as the economy became more equal. And since the 1970s, that share has been increasing. And that's not just on wealth, that's also on income. So rich people are getting richer, and the gap is increasing. And as such, high net worth individuals are becoming much more important, especially in philanthropies rather than charities. Because a lot of high net worth individuals would prefer to donate to a philanthropy rather than donating to a charity, as they would like to solve the root cause of an issue. That's their major concern, right? And if you want to see examples, the biggest example I can think of is the giving pledge. A lot of people think of Bill Gates when I talk about the giving pledge. But it actually right now has reached 185 high net worth individuals. 185 rich people have taken the pledge that they are going to donate the majority of their wealth to do good in this world. It's a huge amount. And I think that's the power of globalization nowadays. It's in 22 countries, and obviously globalization has its positives and its negatives. But when a good idea becomes infectious, you can see how powerful globalization is in motivating and activating people. But all this is, is across the world, right? I've used statistics from the US, but trust me, this is replicated in most countries around the world. But I'd like to dig down into the MENA region. What has been happening here? And here, if we're talking about the Giving Pledge, there are already four people that I know of, one, two, three, four, from the UAE, who have joined that pledge, that global pledge. We have uh, Prince uh, Walid bin Talal, who has also joined that pledge from Saudi Arabia. And I've put the photo of His Excellency uh, Abdullah Al-Gharir, who has you know, most recently donated a billion dirhams to an endowment fund. And I know there are, um, we're honored to have uh, some uh, philanthropists here with us in the audience. I can put a lot of photos up here, right? But what I'm trying to say is philanthropy is alive and well, and especially when you consider Sanduq al-Watan. And I'm not saying this because I'm the Director General of Sanduq al-Watan. I really am not. This initiative is one of the most unique initiatives you'll see on a global basis. Because you had 85, you know, there, there are females involved in this initiative, they were just not here at the event. But there were 85 high net worth individuals and corporations who came together to set up this national fund. We've raised over 700 million dirhams in one year, right? It's an amazing amount. And what makes this philanthropy so unique is that usually high net worth individuals, they work on their own. They have their own wealth, they fund their own foundation, they might give money here and there. But to have 85 people come together under the uh, guidance of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed and his, uh, his encouragement for, for philanthropy, to come together under one cause, that is truly unique. And that you will not find anywhere across the world. And of course, I'm going to be speaking about Sunduq al-Watan a lot here today, just because I, I know a lot about it. And the thing is, this is not recent. It didn't start with Sanduq al-Watan. It didn't start with a giving pledge. We can be very proud here in the MENA region that philanthropy has been ingrained in, in every single fiber of our being, whether it's our history, whether it's our religion, and especially our religion. You know, the majority of the MENA region is uh, or follows the religion of Islam. And some of you might know this, and some of you might not, but on an annual basis, Islam obliges you, you have to do it, it's mandatory, to give 2.5% of your wealth towards charitable causes. On an annual basis. That is massive. We're not talking about 2.5% of your income, of your wealth, right? And if you estimate that, 
And it's very difficult to estimate this number, but the, the most reasonable and the most valid estimate and the most quoted one is about $560 billion in 2015. Even with the fact that most Muslim countries are perhaps um, not as developed, or there are a couple of wars and civil issues that are affecting them. But we still managed to give, just through Zakat, $160 billion more than the United States, which is seen as the most generous country in the world in terms of their individuals, and the strongest economy, which is huge. It's a huge opportunity. And the other thing is, that's just, just the half of it, because Muslims are also encouraged to give sadaqah above and beyond that 2.5%. And what I'm trying to get at is if you have all that money around the world, and it's rising, and, and especially in the region, there's a huge opportunity for you, if you run a philanthropy in a proper way, to have enough funding to achieve your goals and, and, and be able to make a real impact. And I'd just like to use a story of, of Fatima here. Um, since we are at a university today, and uh, since many of you might think that this is just, you know, this is just funding charities only, but we have philanthropy ingrained, as I said, it's ro very strongly rooted in the region because Fatima, in, 1850, in, in, sorry, in 859 AD, went to Fez, Morocco, and set up the oldest university in the world, University of uh, Qarawiyin. She was uh, a businesswoman who made a lot of wealth. She inherited a lot of wealth from her parents. And uh, when uh, there was a refugee crisis in Morocco, she headed there and she provided all charitable services. But she put aside a part of her wealth to create a purely philanthropic initiative about promoting education. And she was a really, really strong leader with exceptional ideas that are now become common across all universities such as giving certified diplomas. She actually thought of that idea so that employers trust the graduates and the quality of graduations that's, that's there. The other thing I'd like to talk about in terms of a trend is just sophistication, um, especially in the region. I'm here, I'm talking about the Middle East because 30 or 40 years ago, or perhaps 20, I could have gone to someone who gave me money and I told them, We've trained a thousand people and I would get a standing ovation. People would love it. You did a great job. But nowadays, if I told someone I'm doing, I'm doing a program that trained a thousand people, the first question a philanthropist will ask me is, okay, great, so what? You've trained a thousand people. So what? What has that done in life? And so when you give a, a, a better statement, and this is not perfect, when you say our program trained a thousand unemployed people, 90% of which, i.e. 900 people, were able to find a job within three months. Now you're talking. Okay, so I found employment for 900 people. And even then, even then a philanthropist will, will tell you, well, so how much did it cost you to, to do this, right? How much did it cost you to find a job for one person? And, and that's how donors are becoming much more sophisticated in the way they're giving. And they really want to see evidence that their money is going to a good cause. Um, and that's why you have organizations such as GiveWell that have, have set up. Um, and the idea of GiveWell is very simple. They look at uh, a number of participating charities and philanthropies, and they assess them on ex the exact criteria I just described. What is your impact? How much does it cost you to treat one person, if it's a healthcare, for example, initiative? And they rank charities from best to worst. And as such, as a donor, you can go to the website and you can select the best philanthropies who are achieving the best uh, impact with every dollar that you're spending. 
there are obviously a lot of trends that I don't have the time to talk about today. Technology is a big one on how we do philanthropy, but also the kind of challenges that we might face. Um, and speaking of challenges, the challenges are, are shifting nowadays, right? We're more concerned with climate change, for example. And the other interesting part with globalization is a lot of global challenges, international challenges, are becoming much more localized. And vice versa, you have a lot of local challenges. An example is a, a, you know, a civil war in, in one of the North African countries, let's say Libya, that has caused the refugee crisis in Europe, right? Um, and so it's an increasingly difficult world to navigate through where you have to, you have to work across borders and you have to be able to work with different philanthropies from around the world. Government regulation is always going to be there. It's always a trend and it's always changing, especially after 9-11 and some of the differences um, in, 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 in governance that, uh, that, that government departments have introduced uh, recently. And many, many more. So, okay, great. You have these amazing trends. How do you manage an organization? That's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm here for that dark, brutal kind of component that you promised me. And it's very simple. Honestly, Running a not-for-profit is just like running a competitive business and an efficient government department at the same time. And I know it sounds, it sounds ridiculous. You want me to run a non-for-profit, it's called a not-profit or non-for-profit or not-profit organization. And you want me to run it like it's a for-profit organization? But that honestly, a lot of the best practices come from the business world. And obviously some come from the government sector. If I may introduce you very quickly to this framework that I've developed. And there are three elements of success that you need to achieve them together, right? You can't do one, you can't do two. They have to, they have to happen at the same time to ensure that you're a successful organization. One is sustainability. And I'm not talking about environmental sustainability, although that would be lovely. I'm talking about financial sustainability. You need to make sure that you built your philanthropy in a way where you ensure that you have enough funding, not just this year, not just next year, but for a very long time, to be able to achieve your goal. Whatever that goal you set out in that strategy document with your vision and mission and, and KPIs and targets and so forth. The other, component, oh, the other component is impact. And here, this is exactly what I was talking about with the so what, right? You really need to achieve the so what. When someone asks you, so what, you need to be able to answer that and to have a real impact on people. And finally, efficiency, which I also mentioned, which is achieving the so what, but in, in the most efficient of ways, spending the least amount of money to achieve the same objective. And the reason I say they're inter, interdependent is imagine you're sustainable, but you're not achieving impact. What happens then? Do you think if... I went a few years later and I went to my, one of my donors, Ahmad, for example, and I told them, give me some more money. Do you think they'll give me money if I haven't achieved anything? No, they won't. I, I know Mohammed Al-Abbar, he definitely won't, right? If I'm not achieving. And, and that's, that's something very important because there are so many other organizations that they can go and fund. You need to be competitive. Um, and, and that's why it's extremely important to achieve all three. And I just want to mention very briefly, I won't have the time to speak about this either, unfortunately, but you have to have a, a number of enablers here. You have to have a sound strategy, which I briefly discussed, but also you need to have the right infrastructure. You have to have good people. You have to have amazing employees. And I think some of them just joined us here today. Um, 
who are passionate, who are great at, at what they do. And that's what makes philanthropies a success, this, this teamwork. The other thing is solid governance. You need to make sure that people are comfortable with giving their donations over. You need to make sure that decisions are made on a, in a proper way. And finally, this is what people miss out on. Have a lean organization. That comes from the business world. You can't operate like a government bureaucracy anymore. You need to be flat. You need to be agile. You need to be flexible. The world is changing on a minute-by-minute basis, not even, not even on a day-by-day basis. And so you need to have that adaptability and flexibility to shift gears at a moment's uh, notice. If I can go into some of those details, and you'll understand a little more on, on how to run a successful philanthropy. What is, you know, um, when we look at sustainability, we're obviously looking at sources of revenue. And honestly, there are four sources that I can think of. If anyone can think of anything else, please, please suggest it. But um, those are generally the four elements. One is commercial activity. So assuming NYU is a, is a philanthropic organization or it's a non-for-profit, which I think it is, um, charging tuition fees is part of commercial activities. Uh, and that actually funds a huge amount of philanthropies around the world. A lot of people think, yeah, that's a small part. It's actually the biggest part. Um, the other thing is donations and sponsorships, which you're familiar with donations. But sponsorships are when government depart- or corporations or government departments want to have their logo plastered somewhere, right? And um, that's usually a little more restrictive than, than an untied kind of donation. Uh, the final thing is, is debt and loans, uh, which I think is everyone can relate to, but endowment returns is something I really want to talk about today. What are endowment? Can I actually, uh, show of hands, anyone who knows what an endowment fund or endowment returns are all about? Okay, lovely. So about half of you. Um, so allow me to just explain it very, very briefly. It's very simple. It's uh, just like a waqf, uh, waqf islami. Um, it is when you have a lot of money, instead of spending it, you invest it globally. And then you take that profit, you take the returns on investment, and that's your revenue source for your philanthropy. So why do people do this? Why don't they just spend, spend the money that they have? Well, in order to ensure sustainability, right? Because if you spend that money, you might not be able to raise it in the future. But if you had that constant money that is generating money on a year-to-year basis, you're much more able to plan your resources properly to guarantee that you have enough income in the future. And so these are the four questions that you need to consider when trying to decide which one of those you want to focus on, or perhaps it's more than one. And the first is, is the funding source sufficient? And I'll take you through Sanduq al-Watan's example. We thought about an endowment fund because of question number two, is the funding source sustainable, right? We wanted something sustainable that gives us money on a year-to-year basis. So we said, well, is the endowment fund going to give us enough money? Because imagine you had 50 million dirhams. That sounds like an amazing amount, right? 50 million. But if you invest that, you know, relatively moderate, low-risk environment, then you're probably getting one to two or three million a year. Maybe that's not enough for you to achieve your goals. It's definitely not enough for Sindhuq al-Watan. We set our budget as a minimum of 20 million, up to to 40 million, hopefully, in the future. So when we made that decision of is endowment fund a, a, a source that's sufficient? I need to kind of work backwards. Our budget is 20 or 30 million. That means I need to have at least half a billion dirhams 
to be able to implement this model. And you can do that with any, any kind of, any one of those elements, you know? If you're looking at commercial activities, will you make enough money to, to cover your costs, for example? The third question is, will the funding model selected maintain the organization's autonomy? And a lot of people don't think about this. And it's something that I, I kept thinking about. Because suppose you are relying on commercial activities. That means that the projects that you implement always have to generate enough money to cover your costs. But what if you find an amazing initiative that is not going to generate uh, enough revenue? And it's going to have an amazing impact. You're not going to be able to implement it, right? If you only use commercial activities. That restricts your autonomy. Or let me, let me give you another example on Sanduq al-Watan. If our endowment fund was funded by one person, that means that that person has complete control over what we do, right? We are so reliant on that, on their strategy, on their vision, that even if they wanted to change the entire model of Sanduq al-Watan, we would have to abide by that. That's our, that's our only source of revenue. At Sanduq al-Watan, we've been uh, very, very, uh, I would say, uh, lucky to have 85 different donors. So that means that there's not a single donor who has this absolute majority over the philanthropy. It's a group decision. And that's sometimes a good thing. And the final thing is, is the organization equipped to handle the effort and complexity associated with the funding source? So each one of those activities, you really have to build the right processes and the right people to be able to implement it. You can't go for commercial activities and all your staff are have no background in business, right? You need some business-minded individuals to be able to implement a commercial activity. Similarly, when at Sanduq al-Watan we were thinking about endowment returns, I'm not an investment expert. None of my staff are. So how are we going to manage this endowment? And thankfully, we had the support of the Abu Dhabi government and Invest Abu Dhabi to help us put in the right framework and the right structure for that. Um, but if that did not exist, maybe we wouldn't have done an endowment fund, right? So you really have to think about how, if you're able to, to actually do this. The other thing is, once you've identified that source, who are you raising the money from? And so at Sanduq al-Watan, we said, there are five groups. The general public, people such as myself, corporations, high net worth individuals, wealthy people, foundations, so maybe, you know, the Gharir Foundation, we can target, and, and government departments. And at Sanduq al-Watan, we decided to go for high net worth individuals and corporations for the reasons mentioned here, and I'll get to that in a second. But all I want to say is you can't focus on all five. I see a lot of people trying to do this, trying to get money from everywhere. You're never going to be successful because just like any business, you need to have a target market. This is the business world, right? Anyone who's run a business before knows that your product speaks to a particular person. And the same thing, your philanthropy speaks to a particular group of people. And so even when, you've, when we've defined high net worth individuals and corporations, we actually looked at high net worth individuals and we said, okay, that's a, that's a big group. Who do we target exactly? And we said, well, we're going to target Emiratis because they love their country. And Sanduq al-Watan, it's called Sanduq al-Watan. It's the national fund. It has this patriotic feeling to it. And then we said we probably would target older businessmen because They've seen how much the UAE has given back to them. And they feel like they owe something to the community. And they're an easier group to, to talk to. And our message would, would you know, sound very, very well with them. Um, and that's what you need to do. And, and you need to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. 
and understand those people. What inspires them? Where do they go? Who do they talk to? Why would they be motivated to give you any money? What line can you tell them that will just help you help them take out that checkbook and they're happy and giving you something to support the cause? It's exactly like if you are, are there any entrepreneurs here? Entrepreneurs? Lovely. So you, you know that, that there's this pitch for investors that we all think about. There's like three or four slides and there's that one line, that value add that you need to, you need to tell people. And that's the same thing with philanthropy. And you need to be able to, to change that line depending on who you're talking to. And finally, on, on, on sustainability, is flexibility. You're never guaranteed of how much money that, that can come in, even if you have an endowment fund. This year, the markets have been doing horribly. My return is not what I wanted it to be. That means I have a much smaller budget. If I had, uh, I don't know, 20 staff that I need to pay for, then I might not have been able to pay their salaries, right? You need to easily be able to scale up and scale down, given how much funding that, that you have. And there are different ways to do it, including using volunteers and part-time employees and so forth. The other thing is, is impact. And I already mentioned this, the so what. So I, I, I wouldn't want to spend more time on this. But more importantly, in order to tell people the so what, you need to measure the so what, right? You need to actually have proper KPIs that measure what is the impact of every single initiative that you have. And there are a couple of pointers and there are so many, many more. You know, Having a very well-defined KPI, for example, is one. Another piece of advice is, and this is important, measure the baseline. <laughs> it's, it's the funniest thing when you talk to people and they say, well, our initiative is so successful. We employed 30 people or God knows what. And I said, well, well, what happened before the initiative? And they have no idea what happened, right? Because they never measured the baseline before starting their initiative, which is a shame. Um, the more important one that I wanted to talk, to, talk about, and, and it's not really common sense uh, to many here, at least in the region, is it's okay to spend money on measuring uh, outcomes. So you find this amazing $100 million campaign that you launch, and it has such a, uh, a big fuss about it. And then you go to that person and you say, well, you know what, we need to measure the baseline, we need to measure the outcomes of this initiative. Well, how much is it going to cost you? Well, it's going to cost me a million dirhams. Oh, no, no, that's too much money, a million dirhams. It is too much money, but think about it. That's 1% of the total budget. What happens when you don't measure incomes? I'll tell you. The initiative is done, and then you look around, and it's just a bunch of subjective opinions about whether something worked or not. And then you have to make a decision on whether to renew this campaign once more. And imagine you choose to renew it, and it, is, it has zero impact. You've just wasted 100 million dirhams, just because you didn't want to spend that 1 million dirhams to measure. Or even if it had a good impact, because you didn't measure the outcomes, you didn't know what was going wrong or what you can improve and how you can build on that. So my uh, advice here is it's okay to spend up to 2.5% to 3% of your total budget on a project on measuring outcomes. It's really worth it. Be careful with data analysis. There's an entire course I took in Oxford over 12 weeks about how people interpret data and statistics. And, um, and I think the best way, uh, best advice I can give you is instead of, instead of bringing a data analyst or uh, that you might not be able to afford, just share the same data with different types of people, right? 
and see what they think and how they interpret the data. That might give you a second opinion that, that you may never have thought of. Maybe you thought there's a causal relationship there and it turns out to be just a mere correlation, right? And an example of Sanduq al-Watan and, and the way we measured one of our programs, obviously there were a set of KPIs, but one thing we do is we identify gifted individuals at a very young age. So think of, think of the Einsteins of this country or the Steve Jobs, people with really, really high IQ who are so passionate about something. And so our, our initiative is trying to identify every single Emirati with that, with that potential, every single one, across every single Emirate in the UAE, and then develop them further through a program. Right? And our program, we started off with a summer with a summer program. It was two weeks run by John Hopkins, which is the top center in the world for, for gifted individuals. And each student picked one of those four courses. And um, they got over 100 hours. Imagine these are 11 and 12-year-olds, grades 6 to 8. They got 100 hours of curriculum and teaching that is usually taught at a university level. So imagine an 11-year-old learning what university students are learning. And um, the great thing about it is, obviously, when they first started the program, their baseline, their average score was very low. They were being tested at a university level. But two weeks later, look at the vast improvement in each one of those programs. It's absolutely mind-boggling. It, it increased from about 7% to 71%. And so when people ask me, okay, you run a summer program, so what? I can mention the statistic. I can, I can tell them that students actually learn. And then you might ask another question and say, so what? And I'll tell you, well, this is what we're going to do. It's too late, too early to tell you the next so what. But ask me again in a few years. And you'll notice that one of them has become a scientist or one of them has become a, a successful businessman or so forth. Um, there's a video that I want to show because as much as I talked about statistics and KPIs and outcomes, at the end of the day, Human beings respond to stories. It's the oldest trick in the book, right? We love stories. And if I, if, in hindsight, if I had to do this lecture again, I would do it in a, in a story, right? That's what captures people. And, um, and especially that human interaction. When you see numbers, that's all great and done. But when you see her talking about her program, which you will in a second, you'll see that it, it just gives you a different feeling. So allow me just to, to play this very, very short video. Hello, everyone. My name is Sophia Fagihi, and I was in the math modeling course in the Sandok Al-Watan Mohibatna program. There were many different things I learned, and to list them, we covered in the first week, we did differential equations, linear and exponential functions. We also learned about fractals and symmetry groups, graph theory, logarithmic scales, and many, many more. Um, we also learned how to work as a team, and we learned that mathematics is actually very important in the real world and can be used everywhere in science, in, in just real life, and even in making a map. You, you will use math all the time. Very simple message. It's not the most inspiring video that has ever been shot, but it, no, that's not me, I promise. <laughs> Although I'd love to watch football. <laughs> um, that story, when you can relate to a person, when you can see the face, that's what really gets you, right? 
Why do we fall, right? Well, apart from the fact that our friends get a good laugh, the other thing is that you fall because it's okay to make mistakes. You need to be very transparent about not just your successes and these great stories, but also about your failures and learning from those failures. Because if you do not admit to yourself that something went wrong, then you'll never learn, right? You'll keep repeating that mistake over and over again. And what's important to me is being transparent about those failures with your donors. Every time I get a check from a donor, I do not promise them that everything will be successful. I promise them we'll do the best we can. I promise them we'll be diligent. I promise them they will, there will be successes. But I also promise them that there will be failures. It's a fact of life. And what I can promise them is that we will learn from those failures and, we'll, and it'll help us improve and develop. And honestly, that's, made, that's what makes donors trust you because they know you're being honest with them. Count the numbers. Watch your head. It's very easy to develop this massive ego. It really is. It's very easy to develop an ego for your organization. For every initiative you want, Sanduq al-Watan's logo to be blasted and it's the only logo that, that shows, right? Not all people, but some people. It's, it's easy to get into that and think about, you know, how do I place my logo and how do I take credit for the work? In reality, as philanthropy, there's no space for that. There's no space for taking credit. There's no place for ego. Because if you want a successful program, you need to run it with every single stakeholder that you can think of. So back to the summer camp that I mentioned. It wasn't a Sanduq al-Watan program. It was a Dubai Future Foundation program. It was a Tawazan program. It was a Strata program. It was a Khalifa University program. It was an NYU program. It was all these different entities that came together to deliver something that had a real, real impact. And it's just the age-old thing. There's strength in numbers. You can't get by it. People will have different expertise that they bring to the table. People will have different resources, different opinions, different networks. Instead of fighting it, embrace it. Learn how to deal with your different stakeholders. Finally, efficiency. And this is the last part of the presentation. I know I've been speaking for a very long time now. But um, two pieces of advice. A, don't duplicate efforts. When we were setting up Sanduq al-Watan, I did not want to do another scholarship. I hate it when people ask me for scholarships. There are 50 different scholarship programs in the UAE. What am I adding? Why should I duplicate that resource? Try to find a niche. Try to find something that no one's addressing. Or if you're really adamant about doing something that someone else is doing, work with them. Don't duplicate the, the initiative. And the other amazing part about working with stakeholders is you get to share costs. If a program is going to cost you 5 million dirhams, if you pull in you know, people who can provide you free venue and other people who can provide you with catering and a sponsor here and a sponsor there and a person who provides a trainer for free and so forth, your cost starts reducing dramatically. At Sanduq al-Watan, across all our initiatives as an aggregate, we pay about 40% of our initiatives in 2018. And we could not have afforded to implement our initiatives or our strategy if we weren't able to share our costs with others. And this is both funding and in-kind services, you know, not paying for a venue or so forth. And the, I think I, I mentioned this, select projects with the highest value per spent when you're looking at efficiency. 
the least least cost per individual or whoever that that unit that you're trying to target. So there's this old age uh, or old age um, kind of um, I would say philosophy among some donors that we need to look at overhead costs. Overhead costs are the most important. How much are you paying for admin? How much are you paying for salaries? Understandably so, because a lot of charities or philanthropies are not efficient. They spend a lot of money on on employees. They have too many employees. The salaries might be too high. They're maybe flying business class um, every few weeks. And so I understand uh, donors' frustration. And it's something that we really need to look at. So, for example, it's estimated that about 33% of total costs go to overhead in, in the United States when people expect about 23%. At Sanduq al-Watan, when we first started, we, we targeted a 20% overhead. We wanted to beat the curve. But be very careful of this figure because it doesn't tell you the whole story. Look at these two hypothetical programs. If you look at the fixed admin cost line, they have the same cost, the same overhead. But if you look at how much it's going to cost to treat 1,000 children, assuming it's the same quality, program A costs 1,000 people and program B costs 10,000 people. So if you were to calculate your overhead cost, right? Program A would have, uh, have an overhead cost of 50% and program B would be 9%. So if you're only looking at overhead, you'd pick program B. Even though it's clearly program A is the much better program and it has an overhead of 50%. So that's why I'm saying, you know, it's good to look at overhead, but you really need to look at the cost per child or cost per whatever person that you're targeting. And um, just as a, as a piece of advice, the best performing organizations had higher overheads than laggers according to uh, GiveWell Foundation. So the best performing organizations spent about 16 of their money on overhead. And the laggers, the ones that didn't do so well, were spending about 10%. And the reason is, if you don't have enough resources in your organization, you're not going to be successful. It's just, that's just a fact. If you're not spending enough on, if you don't have enough employees or enough um, on, on marketing or fundraising or so forth. Which brings me to my point of how many staff should we employ? You know, there are some organizations where it's a one-man show. They rely completely and entirely on volunteers, right? And there are other organizations where there are 50 people peeking across your shoulder um, trying to type something on, on one computer, right? There's just so many people that are not needed. And honestly, the, the, the right balance is somewhere in between. Don't build an empire. The reason why people recruit so many people is A, maybe they, they don't know how much uh, employees they need. In that case, do a study and find out exactly how many employees you need and what's the workload. But a lot of people, um, perhaps um, here in the region, are, and, and even globally, are trying to build an empire. I'm very proud to say that we're only six employees. Extremely proud. And some people say, oh, you're just, you're just a manager of a six-employee organization. Yes, that means that I'm running also 16 projects. I'm doing fundraising and I'm, in, I'm managing my, uh, my investment portfolio, which means that this team is much more efficient and much more effective than anything you've seen. It's something I'm extremely proud of. So it's not about building an empire. It doesn't matter how many employees you have. Don't, again, put your ego aside. It's really about the, the, the greater cause. The other thing is don't... Don't rely exclusively on volunteers. 
That's just a fact. You cannot run an organization if you don't have full-time staff there. And that doesn't mean, you know, some organizations, I'll give you an example. I worked in Beit Matuhab before. And um, the great thing about it is we used a lot of volunteers. But we were also given the permission to spend some of our time, our full-time days, on working for that organization. If we weren't giving that permission, we would have never succeeded, right? Um, and so you really need to have full-time staff, whether they're on your payroll or someone else's payroll. There needs to be a, a minimum amount of people that, that work. And what's that minimum? Honestly, it all depends. You, it's a case-by-case basis. But the best way I can say is, in order to reduce the number, the best advice I can give you is loosely defined roles, right here. If um, our finance manager was with us here today, if she just did finance, I would have probably needed to recruit someone else. But because she runs programs with us, right? That means that she can cover some of the load. And that's how we're efficient and that's how we keep our overhead to, uh, to a minimum. Finally, that's your project. Don't get scared to dissect it. You know, it's, it's very easy to think, I have this one project, I need to find that one vendor or that one entity that's going to implement it. And I'm going to give them that. But that usually, especially if, a, if it's a complex project, the, uh, the, the parts of it might have different expertise or might have different costs. It actually makes much more sense to look at each individual item of your project and see if someone else can do it cheaper. And giving some of your project items here and some of your project items there. And this way you can reduce the overall cost. Does that increase your uh, headache? Absolutely. You have to coordinate with a lot of entities. But in reality, it's, it's a much more efficient process if you're really tight on money. Another thing you can do is don't get scared to outsource. It might be much more expensive to bring in an expert than to give something to a company for them to run, right? And finally, don't, don't be scared to use scale. Sometimes scaling up can reduce your cost. Sometimes scaling down can reduce your cost. So just try to find that optimum number that will get you the biggest bang for your buck. I promise that was the last slide. Thank you very much. I realize... You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.